This episode of Let's Think On It comes from an excerpt from O Brother Radio with Will Lockamy, Reed Lockamy, and Dr. Mark Westfall. Um, Reed, how would you describe what happened a few weeks ago when we brought Wayne G. Carter into the studio? You know, I'm going to use the word terrific uh, because, I don't know if you know this, Will, but terrific uh, has two meanings, and they mean like completely opposite things. If I said to you, what does terrific mean, what would you say? Oh, great. Right. So I was, you know, watching a World War II documentary uh, years ago, and there was a really old fella, and he was talking about um, a battle, I think, in the Pacific Theater, and he said, yeah, you know, we, we fought and fought, and it was just terrific. And I was like, well, what an interesting perspective to have on the horrific battle that you just described. And of course, I went and looked up the word terrific and realized that, the, you know, the root is terror. Uh, so terrific can also, it can mean wonderful and also terrifying. Yeah, much like extraordinary, you can go both. That doesn't mean sure. good, but you think of something that's extraordinary. <coughs> oh, it's great, but I mean, that's a that's yeah. one way or the other. Reg the other day said, I, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the word, but he said he described something that I d- thought was good mm. in a word that I was like, well, no, I thought it was good. Was it, it doozy? Like, maybe it was. Might have been doozy. I do think it was a doozy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah we talked about it on the show not long ago. So, you know, I'm going to say terrific because I our first interview with Wayne was both like wonderful and, uh, you know, scary and in the best ways possible yeah yeah it was Mm -hmm. um so now let's welcome back to the show wayne g carter of course if you missed the original interview wayne was on as the featured artist from art crawl and as we just did our introductory like hey wayne where are you from he just said he was from birmingham but had spent some time away and had just recently moved back and find out found out he had been to the pen um how much do we want to set this up let's also welcome to the show dr mark westfall who's here every month and we always talk about really interesting things you can find these segments on a podcast called let's think on it anywhere you find podcast so wayne do you want to describe to people what tell people why you went to the pen why were you in the pen for a while uh robbery first degree under the pharmacy act the Pharmacy Act, which I learned a lot about. I didn't know that was a thing. But basically, you lost your wife. She, Her father, who was a co-signer on your home, went to the bank and said, I no longer want to be a co-signer. Uh, take my name off of this. The bank came to you and said, hey, we need to get 80, how many? 80, $80,000. $80,000. Or another co-signer. Or another co-signer, but you didn't know anybody. And so... You said, all right, 80 grand, I got this. Because you'd had, a, in the past, even though you cleaned up your act, you'd had a shady past, and you thought you could go rob a, uh, a pharmacy, get that money. You already had it set up where people were going to sell it for you and whatever, and turns out uh, that's not a good thing. That didn't work out. That's, uh, it didn't work out. No. Correct. Um, and the Pharmacy Act basically means robbing a pharmacy is more serious than robbing other places. Or burglarizing one. No, oh, it's a different thing. Uh, it's both covered under the Pharmacy Act, but yes, you you mess with a pharmacy, you you face a major tough time. Yeah, and you received life in prison. I would say life without parole to start with. So, and tell people how you got out again. Well, through the good graces of a judge named William Sashi in Montgomery County. 
he he didn't like he thought that that was just too much time but since so you know the district attorney and the owners of the you know pharmacy were there and wanted me to have life without he pretty much felt hogtied so he gave it to me now life without remind us real quickly how many people you killed during the commission of your crime oh i've never injured anybody in any of them. zero people zero nobody's been in the emergency room or the morgue you know and remind <laughs> us how many real quickly then how many pharmacies were part of the spree that you went on how many um, well, I robberies. mean, I got off into this at a young age, and so I, I had uh, six convictions. Yeah, so you had a prior record. I had, yeah. I had prior records. And that probably factored into the sentence you after received. After that last, oh, it absolutely yeah, did. But yeah. still, those were powerful people. You right. Know, they, they, they were mad, and the uh, Alabama Pharmacists Association has quite a bit of pull. But William Sashi so you know through that and he sentenced me to he reduced the sentence to life yeah with parole yeah and which doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get out either there's plenty of folks who got just plain life sentences that are dying in there from yeah. old age but uh nonetheless uh i i did make parole and i did get out so uh, there's you know uh, there is divine intervention sometimes right in some cases we had a lot of uh, friends and listeners reach out, just a ton of response about that interview that you did. And, of course, we thought it was going to be a five-minute, like, oh, tell us about your art. And then, of course, ended up doing 50 minutes uninterrupted, which was, it was just fantastic. And then, of course, we put it out on the web, and people have listened to it over and over and over. The numbers have been really great on that. Uh-huh. Um, and your art is fantastic. We came out to Art Crawl, actually, and, and got to got to hang out for a few minutes and look at all your art and the stuff that we heard you describe on the air, it was cool to see all that kind of come to life a bit. And, and a buddy of ours, Brandon, he took home one of your pieces, which is now is. nicely displayed at his home. That's right. Which, uh, yeah. Right across from Dr. Mark Westfalls, as a matter of fact. So we got to go by the other night and check it out. Yeah. Yeah, it works really well. So, um, all right. Uh, that's the introductory. Let's do a quick, Mark, you tell us how we're going to do this tonight. Uh, we'll go to a quick break, and then we'll come back and get right into the meat of it. Yeah, well, so, you know, I mean, you, you reached out to me and said, hey, I, we interviewed this interesting fellow and, and wanted me to listen, and I did, and it was very intriguing, and so, you know, we can't go through the whole thing uh, repeated. I certainly encourage sure. listeners to listen to it again. Long story short, what what stuck out, stuck? Stuck out to me. Stuck. Yeah. Stuck out to me was um, the comment, the quote, I'm a lost dude in a lost world. Hmm. You guys went through a lot of different things. You talked about some substance use in the past like you know acid and you talked about marijuana you talked about some of the research going on with that you talked about the history of his uh, crime and all that stuff but then you asked him how he was doing and his answer was i'm a lost dude in a lost world and it just was not the answer i don't think anyone was expecting to hear and for me it made me want to know whoa what why Mm -hmm. you know so i think when we come back we'll, we'll we'll go into what does that mean yeah, so. I was definitely taken back a bit. Um, just when I asked, I was I was honestly asking, like, well, gosh, so much you've been through now. How are you doing? And I generally people say, like, oh, I'm good. Yeah. You know, I got two feet under me. But, but Wayne, of course, in Wayne fashion was pretty honest about that. Yeah. So, Wayne, so back to that quote. At the last interview, when Will asked you how you were doing, you said, man, I'm, I'm a lost dude in a lost world. Help us understand what that means. Well simply put I guess is culture shock 
That's like number one. But I just come from a, a, a pressure cooker. Like, you wouldn't believe. I mean, just an insane asylum of people running crazy on synthetic marijuana and just bestiality and beatings and craziness unimaginable. You're talking about within the walls of the prison. Oh, yeah, yeah, man. Guys don't pay their bills. I mean, they strip them butt naked, tie them up to a damn, to a bed, excuse me. You're good. You can say damn. And tie them to a bed, whoop them with paddles and belts, put them on YouTube, and show them to the world. Now, this is an everyday kind of thing, you know. And then the guys that are on this stuff are screaming like the demons of hell are on them and trying to swim across floors and puking and wallering in it and so, so these puking are, and drowning in it and dying on the racks. These are inmates who are getting substances while in prison. Well, yeah. 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 And then having these reactions you're describing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mostly yeah, you got it. Are you referring to Flocker or is this all kinds of stuff? Mostly Flocko. Which is that that drives them completely crazy. And now they just get the straight powder in. They don't even worry about putting it on some leafy green substance. They just get the straight powder in and so help me with go crazy. And then you come out into the free world, and you know, just out of one pressure cooker into something that's supposed to be easier, but it's. It's just as much of a pressure cooker, too, in its own little way. How so? Because when I went in, the Twin Towers were still standing, you know? And now I come into a society where, you know, the digital revolution's taken over. I mean, even on the bus coming from Montgomery to here, you know, you look at the cars beside you, everybody's looking down at a phone, Everybody in the bus is looking down at a phone, you know. Yeah. And everywhere you walk around, people are looking down at a phone. And people are not going to communicate with you, you know, the fear factor thing. It's like people are just paranoid, you know, just super paranoid. Just so you're seeing a, a very distinct difference from you went into 2001. So from correct. 2000 to now 2017, you're feeling a very different culture. Well, not sure. not just to change from prison to being free, but the culture you had before prison and the culture after prison are, are dramatically different for you. And the culture of free societies that I was living in when I got busted uh, compared to the free society mm, yeah. that I come back to six, right. 16 and a half years later. Now, one of the things that struck me was you, you talk about the experiences in prison. And from listening to you, it sounds like you had a pretty extensive experience with substances prior to going to prison oh yeah but it seems what you're describing has in prison was dramatically more uh, like intense uh, maybe or, yeah intense than yeah. even when you were using before you got to prison does that make sense i mean is that oh, what you're well, saying I, man you know I, I come from the hippie generation man we all got high and had fun you know and partied and man, we wasn't Screaming like the demons of hell are on us and hollering for mama or trying to, you know, swim across floors freaking out, you know. The, the, gotcha. So you're, you, it you, was a peaceful thing. This thing in here, 
very was different. super intense because of so many people concentrating in such a small spot. It's two hundred percent overcrowded. Right. I mean, well, there's five people in this room. A hundred percent, there'd be ten people in this right. room. Two hundred percent, there'd be twenty people right. in this room. And for decades, I did this. You know, decades I did this. I mean, yeah, and, it just. And, you know, crazy, the phrase space dictates behavior. Um, and, you know, when you're living in really crowded conditions, yeah. it, it really does affect emotionally your day, everyday function. Well, the studies that they've done, done on overcrowding conditions on human beings don't get nowhere near approach 200%. Yeah, there's a balance because people certainly need human connection. Dr. Westfall, we've talked with you on the show about that, the idea of connectedness and you know, sort of the spiritual aspect of, of humans and, and what we need in that regard. But too much of it is, you know, too much of a good thing is, is a bad thing. Yeah, and this is not really it's not positive social yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> experience, right? I mean, no. this is, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming, I mean, you, you were afraid at times. Well, uh, no. No? Mm. Not really. Why not? Well, number one, I'm an old head. I've been around a long time, mm. and I have all kinds of friends through all kinds of society, and especially the black community. And, and when you're in prison, you get along with the black folks, and you pretty much got it made, you know. And I had a great reputation with them, inside and outside, because I never, was never prejudiced to begin with. And they always, you know, sensed that. So I had a lot of good black friends. Yeah. And so they all say, you know, leave that one alone, you know. So they never bothered me. So you never had a physical altercation in prison, or did you? Oh, I've been in many fights, with, with, but not over, over drugs. I've never been scared about, you know, one of these guys freaking out and stabbing me or something. Best, best hardest, most vicious fights I've been in is over this wedding band and idiots wanting to pound them into gold teeth, you know. <laughs> That's the they were biggest getting, problem I had. They were hitting close to home with that wedding band, weren't they? I was the only thing left of my entire marriage. Because I heard that. The happiest years of my life. Last man. time. She passed away a, with a week or so before you went to prison, right? A few days. You know, 11 days. Yeah. You know, all this happened within 11 yeah, days. Yeah, I bet that was fighting words when they start looking at that wedding oh, band. Oh, man, yeah. Yeah, knock down drag outs. And, and always, it, was, it would be... Some of the black guys would come and break it up, you know. So, you know, there's somebody who'd say, hey, they're beating up the old school over there. You know, better go rescue them. That's what they called you, old school? Yeah, an OG. <laughs> so, so I used to deal with some of their grandparents. They're beating up know, old man. school. We're yeah. going to uh, mix up with them. And yeah, them I used bit. to deal with some of their grandparents and aunts and uncles. So, you know, they'd call home and stuff. They'd say, you know old guy named Carter? And they'd say, yeah, we know him. And so, you know, I'd I'd be good as gold from then on out. Having never been in a fight in my life, <laughs> I, that sounds terrifying. And no. You said you were never scared. Other than the wedding ring, why uh, Why else did you have altercations? Well, uh, there's a lot of people who have bad drug habits. Well, they got to pay for them drug habits. And when the drug dealers threatening to whoop them or turn them into prostitutes and stuff like that, well, they start breaking in boxes and... You go to chow, come back, and your little box with all your little belongings in it's been kicked off the rack and everything stole. Well, I mean, yeah. you can't put up with that too much before you, you know you, you got serious problems. You yeah. have to stop this stuff. 
and fortunately I spent some of my years raised up around wild crazy Cajun kids who just love to fight Cajun boys are oh, yeah. insane and, I know uh, they keep the little girls chained up in the front yard, but the boys, they let them do anything they want to. They're wild savages, so I learned how to fight <laughs> with a bunch of Cajun kids. <laughs> so when it comes to, you know, these these clowns in a county jail or a joint, you know, I, had to, I was in pretty good shape and all that, so I never really worried about too tough. Wayne, let me ask you another okay. area, because you've touched base on your wife a couple times. Yes. All right. And... Can you share a little bit about that experience? Because I don't, I sense that there's not been closure. Well, yeah, yeah, you can sense that real well because that's that's true. Uh, a year after her death, the Multiple Sclerosis Society, and that's what killed her, is complications from multiple sclerosis (MS). But they sent a flyer out, and they talked about how the primary caregiver is the one that really goes through one tremendous trauma when their loved one dies. And that's exactly what happened to me. I mean, they started talking about it. I started reading this whole article about it, and I said, there, it, it, that's it's a me. Slow, it's, it's slow. Now, when you're in it, and you're taking care of your loved one, you're making appointments, you're doing this you're doing that you know you get caught up in it 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 never really hits you because you've always got something to do but when that loved one dies see that see you know it it, it just it just completely i just completely lost it and not only because of the conditions you know that the ms society listed but, I mean, I love this woman with a mad passion, too, man. You know, I'd never been married before. It was my first time of getting yeah. married, and I planned to stay married. How know? long were y'all together? Eleven and a half years, and that was just real too short. You know? Yeah, yeah. And that goes by just, in a hurry. And and then, you know, you're, you're, the other thing is you're, okay, so she dies 11 days before you go to prison. And, you know, grief is a long process. And yeah. I'm, I'm picturing you going to prison and trying to grieve, well, those two those two things don't really coincide. No, I just I went canatonic for a pretty good while. Yeah, what was that first year like? Uh, uh, canatonic. Do you I know what it was like? Do you remember that? I, I remember bits and pieces of the Montgomery County Jail where I was put, and then I went to Kilby, you know, and I kind of I drift through cloud, you know. And then they sent me on to Staten from Kilby, and there there were people that I had either done time with before or knew from the street, and they would help me, you know, you know, get up, Carter. It's time to go to, you know, eat, you know. Describe you know, what you mean by catatonic. Just completely out, non-responsive, you know, not really talking, not socializing, not getting out of the rack of. Uh, not reading anything, no no stimulus coming in, and not interested in finding no stimulus. You know, yeah. just sitting on my rack, just staring at the wall, existing. You know, just yeah, I mean, and barely that, right? It was just, yeah, it was a pitiful thing. You know, how did you climb out of that? Well, I started doodling, 
and I would just sit for hours and doodle, you know, and, and then I got me some magic markers of different colors, and I'd color in my doodles, and then a guy challenged me to paint what I doodled, and I, I gave him a hard time about that, but finally he just called my bluff, you know, and brought me the canvas, the varnish, the brushes, the paint, and said, you know, here, you know, paint, and so I did, and that slowly brought me out of it because that gave me something to do, something to get up and, you know, get at. And once I fell in love with it and it became a passion for me, it helped pull me out of it so I could, you know, go to the channel on my own. Because you know? well, that's, that's pretty shot there for a while, man. And, and now you're on the radio and at the Art Walk, and... <clears throat> People are writing and people left, are writing and, right and, left and right, and your uh, your artwork is amazing. Well, that's an amazing trip, but yes, it is amazing. But on the other hand, on the other hand, if good people do the right thing and follow the intuition that guides them, there'll be other good people along the road that pick up on this. You, you sound know? Wayne. You sound like you might have a little bit of. Uh, we've talked about this topic before you get a little spirituality in you i don't mean religious i mean you connect oh, to yeah. s- you connect to some some energy out there what? is that you might be the most spiritual person i've ever met <laughs> <laughs> i'm serious from that talk the other, the other day well i don't know about all that well but here's the thing I'll t- well, what is great you? suffering comes you know great insight yeah. if you've got the time and the patience and the awareness to work through it so your suffering does have some kind of benefit to it and I've gained a mess of insight over the years especially in the last 16 man so, hey, that would just about kill right. me right there so you feel like your suffering has some benefit to it well I know it does because I've made it so you know I could wallow in self pity and shame and guilt and oh man you know I could claim depression and get on Ativan and uh, you know Prozac and all that but no 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 because I am a spiritual person I know that you have to work through this stuff you know that that is what spirit is about you know is overcoming and that the testing a spirit is with like the tempering of iron you know you you got to have a challenge to forge yourself when did you first find that drive where, where does that come from in in your in your life when children live through trauma they believe in magic because it's the only refuge left to them yeah. And so that predisposed me at a very early age to explore inward. And when you're an only child and you move about the country and you're always a new kid in the school and a new kid on the block and you always got to prove yourself somewhere, sometime, you retreat within yourself. And those things set you on a course to where you're open to the unconscious, 
you know, and the subconscious yeah. and the spiritual. And from there, if you're, you know, if you get interested in it and if you've got some sense and if you can expand your awareness, you can get into some depths of things, man, that, you know, that are pretty yeah. intriguing, you know. So, and feel free to, to answer only what you want to answer. You just said when children have trauma, you're describing yourself huh. as a child. You went through something traumatic. Yeah, and many other kids, man, they're going through it right. every day, man. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, uh, mom divorced when I was like one year old because dad drank too much and slapped the little woman around. Well, in 1957, that was a accepted behavior, you know, but except to my mother who took exception to it and divorced it, but, you know. And then when I was six, she met somebody else, and we moved away, and we began a journey all across the United States, you know. And kids go through, you know, all this yeah. kind of stuff all the time, man. You know, I'm no, I'm no exception. Yeah. You came and I'm a high school dropout. You know, I, I, I mean, you know, divorced, single parent raised, and, you know, a couple of stepfathers, uh, drop out of high school, and, you know, I yeah. did all the things. I slipped through a bunch you, of different you, cracks along the way. You described something really powerful, I think, that going through that adversity put some forces in your brain and your spirit, forced, forcing you to find some meaning to life. Not everybody chooses to, to attach meaning to it, but there it forces you, I think, to a decision point. Yeah, you can either really. choose to apply meaning to the suffering, or it's meaningless, and that—that's what you have a choice in. I think yeah, is, is I, applying the meaning. You're exactly right. And you chose to apply meaning to it, and yeah. find some find a, a, something larger, and that force than you. You're talking about when you said force. Yes, yeah, you're hitting on something there. But I believe Will has something. To no, I was just going to let everybody know, if you've just tuned in, or because we haven't said who this is in a while, uh, it's Wayne G. Carter, who's an artist um, who's spent the last 16 years in the penitentiary, and he just uh, you know happened upon us a few weeks ago, and this has been a really interesting talk, and uh, of course, Dr. Mark Westfall is here with us as well. We're going uninterrupted for the rest of the show until 9 o'clock, so the rest of the show brought to you by Good People Brewing Company, Good People Brewing, the most happening business in Birmingham. So, Wayne, I wanted to ask you this. Uh, you come across as an educated guy. You write. We talked off the air about how you know you follow words. You want to know the definitions of words, and you write poetry. Being a high school dropout, where do you think your education comes from? Is that just self-taught? Oh uh, yeah, all of it. And you know, good people along the way. You know, I've met people that uh, Birmingham Southern students that would lend me their textbooks when I was in the eighth grade. You know, and I'd sit around and kick it with a bunch of genius Birmingham Southern University kids, you know, man. <laughs> they'd give me tests, and if I passed the test, well, we'd smoke a joint, you know. Well, I gave me incentive to, see, I'll study some more. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, there's people, good people along the way, and books are everywhere. The, uh, the thing of salvation that saved me through a lot of, you know, trauma and trouble was reading. You know, read anything. Uh, I, I, science fiction and philosophy or 
you know, encyclopedias, dictionaries, and whatever was around in some of them jails I was in, you know, that Zane Gray Westerns to Robert Heinlein's, you know, and just read anything you get your hands on, take your mind off of the circumstances you were in. It's escapism. But yeah. eventually I learned how to read nonfiction, and that that was a whole other eye-opener right there. Yeah, you really, you, you clearly have had a lot of mind-broadening experiences, and, and you've listened to them and been open to learning the unconventional way. Um, and I'm not, I know y'all talked about substances before. I'm not speaking specifically to that. I'm just saying in general, a lot of people, and we've talked about this before, yeah. don't learn the traditional way, and school doesn't really fit them, or their circumstances aren't conducive to them pulling information from a classroom. And so to me, I think that's one of the places our society lets kids down is not reaching them to teach them the way that they learn. And you, you found a way. I mean, it sounds like it was unconventional, but you found a way to learn. I mean, you're, you seem very, as Will picked up, I mean, you're very learned in an unconventional way. And, and well, But I mean, the school of hard knocks and bitter experience is not the way that we should be teaching our children. No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not implying that. that. Are, are deep inside them. And I, uh, but, you know, there is something that the, there is some uh, research into adversity and the benefit of some amount of adversity in youth um, that it helps humans develop resilience as they get older. One of the things that I'm hearing from, from college counselors is that students are coming to them who've had zero adversity, like, you oh. know, no, no bees, you know, yeah. no real, nothing challenging to their ego. And they get to college and they get challenged and they crumble over a grade. There's a neurosis that can come from never being injured, for example. If a, if a child is kept from any danger, then they start to develop an you know irrational fear of any danger because they don't know how to deal with danger. If you, if you get a few bumps and scrapes, you learn right. like, oh, I right. can deal with that. Yeah, so yeah. S- some amount of adversity is helpful. <laughs> what you're, I think, uh, what you're describing and alluding to, I think there's probably more trauma than you shared, which is fine. I'm not asking you to share more. Just a nod that there may be more there. Mm. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, is, is, you know, now we're moving from adversity to a world of trauma. And trauma is when something is so emotionally impactful that it stays with you. For example, your experience in the prison, you've shared that. You're having mm. trouble shaking it. It's it's well, kind of yeah. It ain't, it's following. I ain't, just, I ain't been out of there that long. Yeah, I know, yeah. but my point is, is, is it's, it's still in it's, there. Yeah. Exactly, and so when people experience trauma as opposed to adversity, that's something that sometimes needs to be dealt with psychologically because it it leaves an impression or or a, a, a scar, if you will, yeah. on your psyche that can be worked on. Um, and and I th- you know I think we the um, after the last show Will reached out and said hey this guy's um, you know says he's not doing so well and we need to try to see if we can get him in some treatment of some sort and you said you were having trouble finding treatment um, yeah and so you know 
searching for someone who can work with you to go through the trauma you've experienced, starting back in childhood. You you started on the radio with, hey, this jail stuff, the prison stuff, is just it's got me, and this 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 adjustment to society has really got me, and that certainly is a starting point. But trauma is a cumulative thing, and so probably the what will help you is to touch base on the different points of trauma you've had in your life and processing that. And you clearly have managed it in some ways. I wonder um, if early in life, if you steered toward substances because you were in a traumatic situation and it felt, I'm not saying an escape, but it would just probably felt good. Well... This is a typical story, too, in that one of the traumas I had was when I was 14. Uh, my mother lost her leg in a car wreck. My stepfather split. All right, this left my mother in the hospital in the charity ward of UAB. And so. How old were you? 14. 14 okay. Just about to turn 15. I was like four months away from turning 15. And so. You know, like, I was having real, when I tried to contact all them people that you're supposed to contact to help you when things happen, you know, they wanted to take me down to the uh, family court and, and, and turn me into the foster care program. That, well, oh I wasn't going to go with that. That's so, you know. great example so of I, how the system can cause more damage okay. than help. Here you are, 14 or 15, your mom's in the hospital, your stepdad split, you're an only child, right? Right. You go to reach out for help, say you're a very I-can-do-it kind of guy. You wanted some help, and they're saying, hey, we need to find your family, essentially take you away from your mom right now. Yeah, we're going to lock you up. Yeah. That's what they essentially was telling yeah. me. So I hung up immediately. Well, wise choice. And, you know, who came to my rescue? Just like any kid in the ghetto who's got him a couple of siblings that need diapers and food and mom's on crack or whatever, the person that came and said, you need your lights turned back on, was the pot dealer. You know, <laughs> man, and I've been buying my little nickel bags from him with my little lawnmower money before Mom had a wreck. But here's a guy that says, I'll put you in the pot game. You can get your tower turned on. You can get you a car. You can have wow. cab fare to go see your mother at the hospital. So yeah. you learned that <laughs> substances were a way to get things done. Yeah, they were they were a a, um, a currency, absolutely right. And this is yeah, this is how Th that was your first experience. Hey, I, I need some money, and I can here's a currency. And you know, and you continue to do, and that's what I mean. If you look at it, that's amazing. I mean, it, you you then went on, I understand, to start to rob a pharmacy to try to pay for a house, right down yeah. the road. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm that's saying. Way so down the road, yeah. Well, but, yeah. but you can see the beginnings of where that sure. that problem solving began okay. at age 14, and where that sense of community came from. When the community that was the, supposed to be the healthy community said, "Hey, we've got a solution for you that's not actually going to help you," there was someone from arguably an unhealthy community who gave you something that felt like, "Hey, that's the support I'm actually looking for." Yeah, and not only that, the other component is that I went from being that odd kid. To the kid everybody wanted to see. You were suddenly you know? the popular oh, guy. So sweet popular now, you know. So I mean, the popular this guy. This whole thing seemed yeah. like a win-win situation to me. Yeah, that is you such know? a pick. 
such a snapshot and of our were, society, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And no, then, no. you know, when one of them older guys come along and said, well, you know, instead of buying pills, we'll just eliminate the middleman altogether and just go right to the drugstore. Well, you know, there you go. You know, and that's, that's how when, the cycle how of you? crime begins in these yes neighborhoods how old I mean, were you the first time and, uh, and if it's going to get you in trouble you don't have to say but how old were you the first time you committed a crime for to, to, for drugs well I was 16 yeah yeah and she busted for pot when i was 16 and I, I don't mean for using i mean well, i mean you, oh, was my first criminal act was stealing when we came when i was 16 that was no. an armed robbery I'd done Armed some. Robbery I'd 16. done some burglaries before, but uh, they, they were. What was the, the Birmingham uh, police were shooting people dead and sicking dogs on them? So what was the objective like at sixteen for that robbery? Uh, money for the roof on the house. I put the roof on the house and put plumbing in there, so we had real plumbing. So when, what were you robbing? When Ma, mom came home from the hospital, she was stunned that, that there was a new house, a new roof on the house, and. We actually had water pressure now because I took all them old lead pipes out and put some PVC in there, and all of a sudden we had good running water pressure and water, man. Mom, Mom didn't know what to think about all that. What did you rob at 16? Can you share? A drugstore. A drugstore. Okay, it started at a drugstore at age 16. Yeah. And then you sold the drugs, yeah. made the money, fixed your house. Yeah, and I bought cars, you know, and all that. When All that you stuff, but see, you know, that, that, see, that's not the answer, <laughs> you know, man. That no, it's not. not but the way you can the see kids it. should be no, you can see solving how problems, man. <laughs> well, you know, I, agree. And I went to Simoleon Clinic, you know, in, in the TAS program. Well, I mean, give me a break, man. They didn't no more care about what happened to me than flying to the moon, but they... Got their grant money, you know. What, hey, what do you think we should do? What, what what can society do to have helped Wayne G. Carter at age 14? Well, they could have helped my mom, you know. Health insurance would have been a great thing instead of her being at a charity ward at UAB. Tore all out of frame, man, you know, and, and had to go through Spain rehab and get another, you know, get an artificial leg. They could have helped her, and by helping her, they would have automatically helped me, you know. And when they saw that I was in distress, I mean, there's so many things. I mean, the trauma of kids. Somebody could have, you know, gave me more counseling than sit me in a circle and tell me, you know, I'm bad for smoking pot and. Uh, let's discuss your problem because that's all we had was a once a week group session that even the counselor didn't take. So they seriously. were focused on the substances more, yeah, more than you know, and more not, than your environment. Not realizing, you know, that that's just a symptom. That's that's not the right. root, you right. know, and that's the whole problem that they've got a lot with this drug treatment stuff. But nonetheless, uh, yeah, they they could have paid more attention to what I had to say. Yeah, that would have been a big help. I was. I did a research um, program in Charleston um, when I was in residency, and the program was it's called Roads Rural Outreach Advocacy and Direct Services. And essentially, this was for people with serious mental illness, not schizophrenia, but it could apply here. 
we would the the team there was a treatment team would have about um, a certain fixed number of patients and instead of the patients coming to the clinic which is really not very effective uh, especially for the, the climate you were in the team goes to the home yeah. the environment yeah and you can get a it's amazing the sense you get of someone's life you just step into their house and you see what's going on and and now you recognize what they're struggling with and the hurdles every day that they have to get over yeah. just to get the basics and it really changed my view of what people were struggling with and when they come to your office it's much bigger than whatever symptom or whoever referred them you know for whatever problem and so to me that's an, an a way that i think treatment could transform to be more um, in the environment Um, because then you might can start to begin to affect some positive changes you know you can maybe at 14 the team could have helped find somebody in the environment who could have been maybe a mentor um, to help you in the environment and you connect that up so you really kind of you know it takes a village to raise a child kind of thing and you really you get the village moving instead of bringing the child out of the village and try to talk to them and say, oh, here's what you need to do, and then throw them back into the village, you haven't done anything. You haven't changed the environment. Well, the open-minded psychologists and psychiatrists of the 60s press the same thing. Go where the people are at. Well, they still ain't doing it. No, and you know you why. And you're talking about a program like it's you some know, kind of pioneering breakthrough. Well, that, well no, this, this was common sti- damn sense, Yeah, exactly. Man. Well, this is 30 years ago, so um, this was, you know, a while back. <laughs> yeah, well, but here's the problem. You want, you, the still number, not doing it. The number one reason it's not no. happening? Uh, finances. Reimbursement. Sure. Insurances will not reimburse you if you don't see a patient in your office. Right. We had to get special permission from Medicare to actually go to the house and bill Medicare. Well, yeah. Which, I mean, that's absurd. <laughs> well, why is it absurd? Corporate America runs this country. Right. Well, from the true. insurance companies, now, the we, big pharma, the big oil. Yeah. I mean, that insurance companies won't agree with it. Well, that's yeah. the same problem we've had for the health care yeah. and psychiatric care and dental care and long-term care yeah. and end-of-life care. Now, I will say that home health care has come a long way. And so for most medical things now, you can get home health care. They come to your house and treat you in your home. Mm-hmm. It's come a long way. But for, yeah. but for you know, traditional psychiatric care, it's typically still in the office. You know, it's funny because you hear people a lot of times lament that, it, you know, in the good old days when doctors would make house calls. And, right. of course, that used to be a thing, and now we find yeah. that's maybe difficult yeah. for different reasons. Yeah. You know, Wayne, I heard um, Johan Hari not long ago talk about um, a problem where uh, people with addiction in particular – you know, uh, just don't have the support services in general. And I don't mean just, let me back up, not services, but just support in general and the connections that they need. And he referenced, uh, you know, um, a problem with women, you know, 100 years ago where women would go uh, to their doctors and say, I, I don't know what's wrong with me. I have everything, a, you know, a person could want to have. I have a, a, you know, a husband who takes care of me and I have a nice house, but I just don't feel happy. And um, now when we look in hindsight, we might say to those women, hey, actually, that's not necessarily everything that a person needs. That might be what your society thinks you as a woman need to feel fulfilled and happy. 
but there's really more that probably you need to feel happy. Do you feel like our society over the course of your life has supported you in a way that was meaningful or have we been lacking? Well, it's obvious it's been lacking. Right. To me and a whole heap of other underprivileged, underclassed, ignored people. Uh, there's a whole big, huge tribe of us out there of every color of the rainbow. You know, the ignored, the outcast, the unwanted. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of us out there. Yeah. Wayne, you, you strike me as a sensitive, intelligent person. You strike me, you know, the times now that I've talked to you as someone who is obviously deserving of respect and dignity and all of these things. But but I get the sense that, that a lot of this could have been prevented if you had sort of gotten the feeling that, that you'd been treated that way from birth on. Man, education. Yeah. Uh, it's a simple thing. Educate every child to their full potential. Right. Man, obviously I'm a smart person. Yeah. And when I was a kid, I must have really been smart because I had a lot more brain cells. You know, <laughs> and why I couldn't have been educated to my full potential, or even half of my potential, is just just beyond me. That would have saved everybody a whole bunch of trouble. I could have been a productive, great member of society. You know, stores still could have had so, their drugs. You know, yeah. and still. Uh, maybe uh, here at the end I can work it out where I can still be of value to society. But all of this could have been, been avoided by the simple thing of educating children to their full potential. Yeah. And why that is such a terrible problem, you know, well, we can get into, you know, why education is the way it is and school reform, which is another thing from the 60s that we pushed that yeah. failed too, you know, because bigger powers are at play and until people stand up and call it and say we're not going to take this kind of bs anymore then it's going to keep happening that's why i'm just real proud of them students down there in sure. florida yeah. who started the movement who say that you know this thing of mass school shootings and active shooters on campus like a uab and this is this is just part of our accepted modern lexicon no we're not going for it you know that this is you're not going to program us you know and us of our generation have been asleep you know columbine happened in 99 we should have been up in arms then we got kids going in there shooting the hell out of each other well duh you know, in the inner cities, it's still happening. It don't get published as much, but, you know, and it may be single and doubles, you know. you got to get into the mass killings now to even get on the news. I mean, that's just totally insane. And it takes a bunch of high school students in Florida to point it out to us. I hope they just revolt all over the country. <laughs> you know, go at it, kids. Y'all have at it. Just walk out of school and make these people vote some sensible damn laws in. Well, good news. Uh, historians are already saying that walkout yesterday was the largest demonstration of its kind in the history of our country. 
Really? Well, yeah. good for them. Yeah. Good for them. Make them lawmakers do the right thing. They serve us. They're supposed we to. We do right. not serve them. And we have been tricked into thinking that they do or they're supposed to look out for our best interests, but we see they don't. Yeah. They're called representatives for a reason. Yeah, they're supposed well, to be. They represent their lobbyists, right? Yeah. But they're supposed to be representing us. <laughs> oh, that's Wayne Man. G. Carter. Uh, he's an artist. I'm sure you're like, what does this guy look like? What does his art look like? You can find it. Uh, he told me I could do this. You go to Facebook and just put in Wayne G. Period Carter. Wayne G. Carter, and yep. you can see what Wayne looks like and all of this fantastic artwork. Hey, man, you posted a picture of a cool painting of an owl you were doing like a block from my house the other day. You were up in Bluff Park. Yeah. Yeah, oh man, at the well, top of the bluff tip, grill, tip top, uh, yeah. yeah, tip top grill, right there. Next Showing up and, like and yeah, uh, Al man's gone. He found him a nice home. Nice. And uh, I got a new one that I just pulled out of the varnish box last night that uh, you might like on there. It's called Four Swans and Frigga's Swans and Frigga's Tears. I got into I some Norse mythology about that one. Um, so I assume if people would like, to, if they see something there they'd like to purchase from you, they can just hit you up on Facebook. Yeah, sure. Okay, cool. That's the way to do that. Uh, Wayne G. Carter, thanks. I guarantee this will not be the last talk we have with yeah. Wayne. Which, by the way, um, all of these talks we have with Dr. Mark Westfall, you can find it. Let's think on it um, anywhere you find podcasts. And I believe if we can get it to work out, we're going to post the previous, the first interview we have with Wayne yeah. on there as well. So people have something to kind of go back to and reference for all of that. Dr. Westfall, thanks so much. This is sure. awesome. Wayne, um, thank you for being courageous, courageous enough to open up. Uh-huh. Inviting me in, that's been a real trip. Well, you're always welcome here. You. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we enjoy it for sure. Um, both of you guys got compliments tonight from listeners. So, to listen to Dr. Mark Westfall live, check out O Brother Radio on Birmingham Mountain Radio, 107.3 FM in Birmingham, 97.5 in Tuscaloosa, at bhammountainradio.com, or on the free BMR app. Join in with your questions and comments on Twitter at Lockamy Brothers. <laughs>